This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Maybe it's time you called Red Energy on 131 806. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Love him or hate him, he's very consistent. Like, he never changes his mood or his style. He was angry yesterday. I don't think I've ever heard the Premier swear, saying these are shitty choices. He's just kicked the can down the road again. They have delayed this issue for years. From the time Gillan McLaughlin took over, they have just put Tasmania in the too-hard basket. I was outraged. It's like a white fella overlay on a wonderful Indigenous heritage. Nut Caro, not into it. Really cross. And come on, Ballarat people. Come on, Ballarat family. Get those placards happening. March the streets. What I would give to be on Martha's Vineyard at the moment. Along Carol, up. I'm hanging out for Port Ferry. Yeah, well, that... <laughs> I don't care where I go. Just get me out of lockdown Melbourne. He could be grumpy. He was old-fashioned in his humour. There are not many broadcasters like Ernie anymore. He was really the little Aussie battler. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome, everybody, to episode 185 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. Haven't I been saying that a lot this week? Corrie Perkin, lovely to be with you again, although we wake up to the last days of winter, but a a fairly frightening world. Melbourne is back in its most severe lockdown since the one of last winter that led into spring and went for weeks into months. And obviously the news on the other side of the world, Corrie, is equally grim, Um, but we do have Miss Jane and her beautiful pink camellias that we can see from a long way away, and there's lots to talk about. There's so much to talk about. Hello, Caro. Hello, Miss Jane. Hello, potties in lockdown, or like two members, two of my children, not three, but two of them are not in lockdown because they live in regional Victoria. It's a very strange and confusing world, Caro. It is. um, To be completely trivial, Corrie, um, Elizabeth Gayton agreed with my mother, Julia. The guest list, she felt, was an unrewarding read. We do owe Anna from the op shop an apology, a bit like you, Corrie. Anna actually did review this book last year on I the podcast. I, I did think, I did. Remember I said to you, haven't we done that? Yeah. It's, you, that's my fault, though, Caro, because you, we must have done it in your absence. I think that's right, Corrie. But, and um, I should have known. But she, look, she really enjoyed it. I ended up finishing it. It was a complete page turn. It couldn't put it down. Then a third friend, Mary, confused matters by saying she'd seen it on TV. I've looked it up. She definitely hasn't seen it on TV, although they are making a TV of um, a TV show of Lucy Foley's other bestseller, The Hunting Party. So who knows, Corrie? Who knows? Well, there was a bit of confusion also on Inst- one, one comment on Instagram Caro from Juliana Claridge one said, is the Nancy Mitford screen adaptation a go to the movies event or streaming? Well, Juliana, if you can get to the movies, good luck to you. Um, (laughs) Not uh, the pursuit of love is not on at the movies. It is on via Amazon Prime, which I have never joined before, Caro, but uh, I did to watch this particular series and I'm very happy with Amazon Prime I have to say it's my little luxury this lockdown oh look it's absolutely and Corrie go for it seriously there's not a huge amount of things to do their their choices are absolutely brilliant I just wanted to say hello to my old friend Thea Guest who is our London messenger. She got in touch, Corrie, with both of us to say how much she's enjoying the podcast. What Thea doesn't do, she's a journalist. She used to be a gun journo on Panorama. She's become a magistrate and now she's volunteering with St John's Ambulance and delivering vaccines. She's not hugely complimentary of um, Boris. I won't say what she called him, but she did say the fact that he put women, a woman in charge of the vaccine program has meant that... The UK is doing very well in that area. Um, yeah, no, and she's also got puppy issues. She's got some great book recommendations. She can't understand why we talk so much about the royal family <laughs> because none of her set do over in England, but I guess that's just the way we roll, Corrie. No, it was a great letter from Thea and um, sending lots of love, and I hope everyone over there is having a lovely summer. Now, speaking of seasons, and I've got a seasonal recipe later on, what are the first signs of spring for you? Because sitting here today, it's fairly grey where I am. 
It's pretty grey, Caro. It's pretty grey where I am sitting as well. Um, it's just another wave of rain has come through. My intrepid husband, who is trying for health reasons to walk at least 10,000 steps a day, went off about 15 minutes ago. He doesn't have an umbrella, so um, <laughs> there you go. Bad luck, drowned rat. But the first sign, of course, is hay fever in this house. There's lots of wattle popping out, which is beautiful to see. But um, there's been a bit of hay fever happening in the last week, so I guess that's probably the first sign. And as I said last week, it's a bit lighter in the mornings. It is, and, um, and there's also that... Um I don't really like the first spring blossom. It's that pink one that goes to the dark red leaves that isn't particularly rewarding except for a couple of weeks. I like to wait for the later blossoms, the white particularly. But um, there's blossom everywhere. And all those bulbs I planted back in at Easter, I reckon, before I rushed off to Amsterdam are all coming up. And I've got all these beautiful early cheer and um, jonquil and um, double daffodils and I've, I've completely forgotten what I planted and where so that's been a really lovely surprise every day I go outside and find another one so and I did get stuck into the herb garden on Sunday I just spent two hours outside just cleaned out every pot replanted everything did a click and collect at my local garden nursery so I'm feeling like we're trying to force spring even if we can't see it Corrie. Yep yeah, it's um it's good it's good to have the intention Caro but got to tell you it's pretty bloody cold here today where I am anyway we'll be positive and hope the sun shines soon well as as we sit here today um in my world Melbourne and the state of Victoria are still not giving up on hosting the grand final but it's looking less and less likely we're not going to have any footy finals in Victoria for the first week or the second week of the finals because the AFL won't hold them without crowds um this is 24 or almost 24 hours after the premier Daniel Andrews announced a really really grim lockdown he seemed at tipping point I thought in that press conference yesterday he seemed angry one thing about Daniel Andrews, um, love him or hate him, he's very consistent, isn't he? Like, he never changes his mood or his style. Well, he was angry yesterday. I don't think I've ever heard the Premier swear, saying these are shitty choices, when he was talking about the East St Kilda... Uh, engagement party. Su- yeah, possible super spreader engagement Two party. Two doctors were at that party. Two uh, doctors. Caro, you just, honestly, you can't get me started on this one. Look, look, I understand the language and cultural challenges with multicultural groups, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne's western suburbs. I really understand the concerns of the community leaders there in getting through what has been happening, particularly last year, Caro, if you remember during Melbourne's two lockdowns, there was a lot of discussion about how to penetrate those communities and get the right information um, out there. But this was a group, this was a group who knew the rules, as you said, a couple of health workers, as we understand, were there. What were they thinking? They knew the rules because the groom-to-be actually made fun of the rules. I don't know the backstory of who actually he, filmed this and who made, leaked well, it. Well, isn't it interesting? Because whoever, whoever, I, I imagine what's happened is that an innocent has has filmed it as a bit of, you know, isn't this fun and jolly? And, and, and all engagement parties are wonderful. There's no denying that. They're, they're a wonderful moment for two families and friends to come together and celebrate a young couple's love. But somebody has obviously passed it on to somebody, I reckon, saying, oh, isn't this great? They celebrated the other night. And then, of course, somehow it's infiltrated. And, and at some point, somebody has been a whistleblower good on them. And uh, as I understand, the police then picked it up. I'm not sure whether it was sent to them directly or they'd heard about it. But the video then ended up in the hands of the police who are now, as we speak, enforcing $5,500 fines on everyone who attended except the children. But it is a really... uh, And a second positive case came out of it when I last read yesterday as well. Isn't that that the annoying end result of this, Cara? Not only are we in lockdown and curfew, which it just really does my head in, the fact that we... Not that I'm out a lot at nine o'clock at night, but just being told you can't go out at night is is very confronting. But the fact that there are now going to be sick people within this group, which we don't want, and and how long have they all been infected and where have they been? 
Yeah, and, and look, I, I, I was in Melbourne over the weekend, obviously, um, post-work at 3AW. There were people everywhere. It was a beautiful weekend. Finally, the sun came out. The queues outside the bakeries, the coffee shops. I think, um, you know, the, around the tan was just like a massive cocktail party. It was to be avoided at all costs. Inside, the Botanic Gardens wasn't so bad. And, you know, you just you want those places to stay open. So I really, really hope that people start behaving themselves. Uh, the curfew to me is a psychological thing. It's a, um, it's a way of just telling people you really have to take this seriously. Please do it for two weeks and maybe we'll, um, we'll get ahead of this because, you know, we keep... I know people... Some people don't like the fact that the Premier keeps talking about Sydney, but Sydney seems to change their policy every day. Like, there is no consistency and there's certainly no real lockdown compared to what, you know, we do in terms of outdoor sport and stuff. And, and um, then, and then from, from, and from a national level too, where's, where's federal, where's the federal government? I continue to remain underwhelmed by Greg Hunt's contribution at the moment. Really, there's some, there, there should be something coming, some sort of national perspective as well. But you're right about Sydney, Caro. It does seem to be curious and confusing. I kind of enjoy the way, if you can enjoy, if that's the right word, the way the Victorian team are. So uh, kind of they, they, they believe in the anecdote, OK, which, which is you and I know as journos, as storytellers, a really good way into a story to break, break down an important and difficult issue for people is to use the anecdote. So the anecdote of, of, of all these people congregating outside bars and standing there and having glasses of alcohol, which of course becomes a party, compared to those who might buy a coffee and move on. So now we're not allowed to drink alcohol uh, outside we've got to keep a mask on which means okay all those little champagne bars that we've been seeing popping up all of the all of the bars around Richmond that um, offended on the weekend no more sipping alcohol everyone but you can still have your coffee yep <laughs> but you're not allowed to stand outside the cafe but you can keep moving with your mask down and drink your coffee well we so, are Melbourne after all Corey we are and there was a and there was another line too Carol I read this morning where they said if you go down to the fish and chip shop to pick up your fish and chips you might be allowed on the way home if you're walking alone to take your mask down to eat one hot chip and I thought every Victorian gets that <laughs> we understand <laughs> it's a bit hard it's a bit like hard to look is- at hot chips isn't it you can't just it's look a, at them. You cannot. But I, yeah, I, exactly right. And so they're, they're, they're kind of addressing it at a level that I think people understand. And I think their comms has been pretty good, although I am just not happy with lockdown, Caro. And I've realised how lucky I was to be working at the bookshop to have a, a meaningful job because we felt it was pretty meaningful to be delivering books to people's doors. But now without that uh as we talked about last week, without that routine of work, it's a very different lockdown. Yeah, it, well, it was pretty grim um, from my side yesterday. Not only was I offered um, security um, help down to the car park after filming Footy Classified because um, of the 60 Minutes story, that very frightening Nick McKenzie story about neo-Nazis um, infiltrating Victoria, just terrifying and so upsetting. Um, and then, you know, so you get into the car. I had Craig Hutchison as my prote- my great protector, <laughs> and um, and um, Superman. I know. And then um, and then you drive home, and there is just no one, no one out on the roads, no one. It's um, mm. it was yeah, it was quiet, it was grim, and that's the next two weeks, and let's hope that all it is. Now, Corrie, on a cheery note, we do have something to so look forward to now every weekend. The newsreader. <laughs> How good was well, it? Well, in fact, Sunday night on the ABC, once again, welcome back. I know. Cotter. It's I great. Know. So we'll talk about the other, I think we're going to have a chat about that in BSF, the first show that we loved, 7.30. But at 8.30, yeah, we've got the Newsreader, which is a six-part series, Sunday nights, 8.30. Uh, very good cast. And, Carol, I was interested to see it's directed by Emma Freeman, as opposed to Emma Friedman, who pops up at the racing carnival time. But Emma Freeman, who um, was that wonderful young director who, uh, remember last year, Stateless? Yes, that was a brilliant show. She won a Best Director for that too. Uh, I think she's such a major talent. What do you think of the newsreader? Well, I I think it's so significant that they've set it in the 80s because there was no better time. Look, 
you and I weren't working in newsrooms in the 60s or the 70s. Well, I, I became a copy girl in 1978 as a 17-year-old. But um, the 80s were, you know, our era, our time. But it was just a lot of fun. There were still newspapers and TV stations were still spending lots of money. They were travelling. They were employing lots of people. And, the, I mean, I still remember where I was. And the first episode deals with um, the um, space shuttle explosion. And I was working in, I was standing in my London bureau watching that um, rocket take off. And I remember Krista, I remember her family, you know, and I remember Haley's Comet and, you know, Paul Hogan and all the stories that they're covering in that first episode are so our era. I do remember I had a a sports editor once, Steve Linnell, when I first became chief footy writer. And he said, you guys, you're all so 80s, you know, you all live in the past. (laughs) And I I probably do. So I've actually, actually absolutely loved this series because... It's so my time. The, the sportscaster is so perfect, isn't he? He's Look, so he, perfect. He's, he's so perfect. And when he when he sort of bails out of the, I can't do this. I'm only a sports reporter. When they say uh, the challenges has has exploded, we need to go to air. You need to do the. You need to be the anchor at this moment. And he's at, at first he's flattered and thinks yes. And then as he's watching the footage in the, in the editing booth, he says. I can't do this. I'm just a sports reporter. <laughs> yeah, well, that that bit I don't quite believe. But William McInnes, I love. Look, he is the world's greatest over-actor and he's completely hamming this one up. But he does seem pretty perfect in the tell role, me he's he? Got, he? Tell me he has a bodysuit on. Oh, no, I think that's what he looks like. He no, looks... he has not put on that much. You mean the man from Sea Change, the hunk, the pin-up? has put on that much weight. Corey, come Surely on. Surely not. It's easy to make people look big for TV. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, anyway, I think he's perfectly cast. I, I love all the characters, really. Marg Downey, our friend, our Scrabble buddy, who disappeared for most of the summer from our Scrabble boards, saying she was making a TV series. Well, we now know, we're now watching the fruits of her labour. And um, remember she told us that the house... Because she plays the wife of Robert Taylor, who is the ageing anchorman who doesn't yeah, want it. Loosely based on Brian Henderson, I thought. Remember back in the... Oh, you might not remember, but who back in the Who died recently, 80s, yep. That's right, he died a couple of weeks ago. Um, well, last week. Um, Brian Henderson, there was a bit of argy-bargy in the 80s because they talked about, or maybe it was the early 90s, about bringing on a female co-anchor to go with Brian on the Channel 9 News in Sydney, and he was dead against it. So I had a feeling there was a little bit of Brian Henderson in this character. And it happened with David Johnson or or Mal Walden, didn't it, too, at Channel 10. Yeah, he's fantastic. And Marg Downey is sort of the power behind the throne. She's had rave reviews. I don't think... I can't remember a bad review for anything Marg's ever done, but she's had rave reviews for this one. Oh, she's great, as as the Machiavellian wife. Well, it's sort of spot the Melbourne um, landmark, isn't it? Because she explained that they filmed her scenes in a house that was, I think, being sold or was vacant for the summer, a house around Camberwell or Hawthorne. And then the, the house where the young aspiring journo lives or the apartment, I think that is in sort of um, on the other side of Dandenong Road in sort of Caulfield or East St Kilda around Hewenden Road, one of those roads. But it's interesting, Caro. Unlike a lot of uh, a lot of dramas that I- I have been set in Melbourne, I was just the name has escaped me. The one that where Jeffrey Rush played allegedly our good friend Bruce Guthrie. Bruce always liked to think that what was that? Well, that was set in the newspaper office. Yeah, was remember? that called the paper? The Sunday paper? Yeah. Uh, was called. Uh, it'll come to me in a minute. But um, but there were lots of you had a very strong sense of a Melbourne paper and a Melbourne. Uh, view of newspaper wars and so on in that show. I have a feeling that this could be more, it, it's more general. I don't necessarily feel it's a particularly Melbourne scenario, this. One thing no, it's that just I thought, that we like, we like things, that we like Melbourne. That's what well, we do. No, yeah, spot this, exactly, spot the, spot the street corner. But, Cara, one thing I thought was not, uh, not the 80s that I remember, at least at the age newsroom where I worked for most of the 80s, is the diversity the cultural diversity among the staff, seriously. In, back in the late 70s, early 80s, when I started in newspapers, there were not a lot of people that, that were not part of the white bread sandwich script, really. Oh, Jesse, I remember at the Herald, we had uh, um, we, the Melbourne Herald. By the way, the show you're talking about is Mercury, Miss Jane's Mercury, just reminded yeah, that's us. that's right. Thank you. That was the name Thanks, of the paper. Um, 
I, I rem- well, well, you know, obviously there was, we had a lot of um, Indian and Sri Lankan sub-editors. We had, we had quite a few, certainly not Asian-born, but Asian heritage journos. No, I, I thought we had a, we, we were more culturally diverse at the old Melbourne Herald, believe it or not. Or there, there were a lot of Melbourne um, private and, and big Catholic school people who got cadetships. It did make me think, Cara, of some of the, and Jane, thank you for mentioning the Mercury, Mercury, which I loved, Uh, but um, of all the great TV shows and the films that we've seen that have centred around newsrooms or newsrooms have have really been the the, the kind of the the chief bolt hole for the action, of course, all the President's Men in 1976, which was just the, the... fabulous Robert Redford, Dustin Hoffman performance uh, reliving the, um, the Watergate scandal. Well, let's face um, it, anything involving Catherine Graham, including that brilliant film we saw. Um, oh, with co- Tom Hanks, yes. We- and But then more locally, do you remember Paper Giants a few years ago? Fantastic. The Dulcie bowling Nene yep. King rivalry. Wasn't that fantastic? There have been quite a few, and I, just, I do find them just totally riveting. My favourite, well, one of my favourites was The Paper with Michael Keaton, and that had a great cast. It had uh, Robert Duvall, Marissa Tomei, Glenn Close, Oh, that's Jason the one Robert. where they. that's the one where they expose uh, um, the Catholic Church for crimes no, against No, that's, no, um, that's the one set in Boston. This is a sort of a comedy drama. Um, oh, it, it, Randy Newman sang the title song, um, Make up, we'll, we'll make up your mind. Anyway, it's called The Paper. It was a Ron Howard uh, film. Corey, honestly, anyone, look it up. Find it on, um, it'll be on something. It might even be on Netflix. It is one of the most realistic portrayals of newspaper life. It is absolutely brilliant. The other thing I did love too is the set because that it just reminded me so much of the old age building in Spencer Street, which when that building was first built in 1969 with all its faux timber panelling small offices and big wide desks for sub-editors and gold carpet everybody said oh it's such a state-of-the-art building and actually looking at that similar kind of setting on Sunday night through this television show I thought nah it was never a good look. Um, sorry, Miss. Sorry, I, I agree. The set is brilliant, and Miss Jane, what can't she do? You can watch the paper, and Corrie, you should do this because it's on Amazon Prime. Another reason that you've signed oh, another up. Another reason. It is really funny, but it's also really serious. Just, just like um, this one is. I mean, the newsroom is. Um, oh, sorry. What's it, is it called? The newsroom? No, the newsroom yeah, is the other. Newsreader. The newsreader. The, the newsroom news is the one we love with. Emily Mortimer and... Um, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, sensational. Absolutely, absolutely brilliant film, but um, a brilliant series, which I just loved. And Jane Fonda, of course, plays the um, crotchety owner who keeps turning up every few episodes. Yeah, and but, written by Aaron Sorkin. In fact, Cara, that's a really good tip. Jeff Daniels plays the main character um, and Emily Mortimer is the producer of this nightly show. It's a great one for lockdown if people haven't caught it. Uh, gosh, what is it about five years old, maybe? But still relevant, still fabulous. I love, I love. They had the red team where where they ran, you know, risky stories past them, which is something that I can completely relate to. But one more thing about this show is the ABC Sunday Night one, and you can't watch it all in one go, can you? We've got to. You, you can't go on Ivy no. and watch it all. No. Is is that? Although it's got some really funny moments, it's also got some really serious moments. And, you know, the way um, William McGuinness speaks to the main female character is just so disgusting. And, and yet it's sort of funny because that's what happened all the time, telling her, you know, about it calls her ugly and, you know, she's her own war zone and all that sort of stuff. And then she, of course, in the first episode, takes an overdose. And that's sort of the basis for the mm. relationship between her and the young aspiring journo. It's yes, just... well, they're kind of rescuing one another, aren't they? Yes, um, they uh, are. And, and even though he comes across initially as a, a rather bumbling sort of, sort of chap, young reporter who uh, played brilliantly by Sam Reid, I might say, but as Dale, the young reporter, ringing home to his mother saying, Mum, you know, I might have, I might have a, I might be able to read the morning news. I think they've said I can do it next week. The updates. And she, and the she updates. goes, the updates, that's right. And she says, can I tell everyone? 
And he goes, yes, you can. So, of course, news around the burbs. Young Dale's going to be on television next week. And he fluffs it. I mean, who hasn't really? Even I was thinking about this as I was watching it, squirming in his embarrassment, thinking, look, he would be better prepared than that. But I do remember having a chat with Laura Tingle, who told me that when she first transitioned from print media onto 7.30 on the ABC. Now she's just a gun at it. But she said the first couple of crosses from Lee Sales to her in Canberra, she was so nervous she couldn't get the words out. Her mouth was contorted almost. And um, it must be just, it must be such a shock no matter what, a, what, no matter what kind of a news pro you are. Corrie, um, that, as I said... It's a brilliant Sunday night viewing and we're going to talk about what precedes it in a moment in BSF. But you are going to open up the cocktail cabinet. I am going to open up the cocktail cabinet with our friend Miles Thompson. And thank you again, Prince Wine Store. Prince Wine Store and Red Energy are the two supporters of our little podcast. We love you guys to bits. And Prince Wine Store, of course, bringing Melburnians the greatest wine in the world. And you can visit their terrific website, from which I am frequently ordering, I have to say, princewinestore.com.au. More often than usual. (laughs) A little more often than usual. Well, it's funny, you know, in lockdown, wine tasting has become a bit of a thing. We're trying to do it in moderation, but we will have a little wine tasting, sometimes amongst the family members, sometimes just Pete and I, um, trying not to knock off a whole bottle. But yes, Prince Wine Store have been very valuable in this Uh, particular instance and I think Jane it might be time to bring along the cocktail cabinet and thank you Jane Jane is pouring drinks and Miles Thompson is here from the Prince Wine Store and what are we drinking today Miles? I've got a little a little double a little Tuscan double today so um, from a producer called Bontaglione and it's a fantastic little Chianti and uh, Vinaccia di San Gimignano. Oh, how beautiful. So we've been travelling to Tuscany a bit in the last few weeks. There's been a lot of discussion in my life anyway about this beautiful book, um, Still Life, which is set in Florence. I can absolutely picture the little villages of where we might be. Tell me about the Chianti. Yeah, so it, this is a brother and sister team, Matteo and Simona. They have a... a, a, a a consultant called Paul Porcassia Giana. I probably haven't said that right. Um, they make such wonderful wine. They're sort of new to sort of Prince Wine Store, but um, their Chianti is this lovely, very fresh, crunchy, really bright style Chianti. Not not on the sort of richer side, much more on the sort of lighter, fresher style. Um, has that lovely, beautiful sort of sour cherry fruit that you get from Sangiovese and those ro- lovely sort of crunchy crunchy tannins and fresh sort of acidity, which makes it really perfect for, for uh, as a food wine. Um, and $25, it's, they're just such stunning value. That is an amazing price, Miles, for an import. That's it's, incredible. It's really good. The, I didn't get to go, but the, the team were over there a few years ago um, and, you know, they went and saw the vineyards and they're actually based in San Gimignano where they make the Vinaccia. Which is which is such a beautiful little town, but that everyone was super super impressed. You know, they're they're trying to sort of do organics in the vineyards. They don't use any herbicides. They're really sort of pushing the quality rather than quantity, which you often see out of the region there. Um, and they're just doing such a wonderful job. We really love their wine. Well, well done, Matteo and Simona, for the Pontiglione Chianti. I I do love the idea of it being a bit lighter and brighter. Sometimes Chiantis can be quite heavy. Yeah, exactly. And this is really modern, really fresh. Um, and yeah, it's such a, you know, like you could have it with like charcuterie or, you know, chicken, you know, like roast chicken or something like that. It's sort of, it's definitely light enough to do that. You could have it with pork, really sort of makes it really versatile. And you can have it on its own, which is really nice too. Great. So that's 25 bucks a bottle. And what is the second Tuscan wine? So, so same again from Pontiglione. Um, and it's their Vinaccia di San Gimignano. So Vinaccia is a really lovely sort of, kind of neutral sort of grape, but it has a lovely sort of green tree fruit, a little bit of this kind of what they call this sort of almond, sort of bitter almond skin, which gives it a nice little sort of texture and a little hit on the palate, which again makes it really perfect for, 
or food and it has this little sort of slight anise sort of hint to it as well very fresh very bright no oak super easy drinking just again super super little wine and what's the what's the vineyard called again miles so fontaleone right is the vineyard yeah yeah and so they make the vinaccia de san gimignano and the chianti and um Tell me what the price is of the Fontaleone, um, the, the, that, that second bottle. The Natchia? Yeah. Yeah, so, so $25 each for both of them. So absolute, like, we just, we're kind of floored every time we open one of them at, at the quality. They're just really that good. That is a great. That is great. They sound like beautiful winter wines too because August being such a cold month in Melbourne, they sound absolutely perfect, Miles. Oh, perfect! No, they're they're, they're so good. I, I take I take them home. I say once a month, one of them comes home with me from the shop. Definitely. God, I don't I don't know I don't know how you contain yourself to just one. I'd be taking I've, as as I keep discussing the boxes from Prince Wine Store just keep arriving at my house. And uh, Miles, that is why we love our connection with Prince Wine Store. Not because I can keep my grog habit going up, but because it is so con- it is so convenient, as we know, and. Obviously, as always, you guys are offering very kindly to our messengers a discount. Yeah, so 10% off uh, when you put in the code MEWS at the checkout um, and you'll get 10% off those wines. So um, makes them even better value. Fantastic. And then in the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at some Father's Day gift ideas in the alcohol department. So I can't wait to have a chat with you about those. Yeah, I've got some. I've got a few few little ideas, some fun stuff. Hopefully, some interesting things. Great, thank you, Miles. Thank you very much uh, to Prince Wine Store for your wonderful support. And as Miles said, use the promo code MEWS at the checkout online to receive our listener discount. Thanks, Miles. Thank you so much. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Miles. And now for Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas. Corey has a crush. I have a big crush on a big topic here, Caro. It's the men who nurtured basketball in Australia. It's basketball in Australia. It's our Olympic team who won bronze, their first ever Olympic medal after years of coming forth. Gosh, did we, we never? I, I don't know whether we ever thought, Caro, they'd be able to win an win a win a, um, a medal, but. They are all the catalysts for this crush. They really are. And it was particularly prompted also, and I know you saw this series too, Australian Story last week and the week before did a wonderful two-part series on Luke Longley, that giant of a young man who was an absolute gun from Perth who went on to the US to play college football and then was picked up, of course, by the Chicago Bulls. And he played in the great Chicago Bulls teams of Michael Jordan and so on. But it's not just Luke Longley who are my crush. It's people like Lindsay Gaze. I don't know whether you saw Andrew Gaze paying tribute to his father so emotionally, Caro, the I morning did. that I wasn't did. it fabulous? I, well, Paddy Mills is um, is my hero at the moment, and and not only has he led this team and that that fine or that well, it was a, pl- a playoff, wasn't it, for the bronze medal. He 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 pushed Australia over the line. His scores, I mean, his scoring, his leadership. He carried the flag. I think he's the first Indigenous Australian to carry the flag um, into an Olympic ceremony for Australia. The work he does for Indigenous Australians back here in Australia, the work he's done overseas, he is just one of our great ambassadors and will continue to be so. And, yeah, that Luke Longley story was, um, you know, how long it took him to get over being left out of the last dance. The Michael mm, Jordan it was, film it was yeah, just it was, awful. I mean, it was so it, sad. And um, Andrew Webster actually wrote a great column about it in the um, in Nine Media, The Age, and the Sydney Morning Herald, which is worth looking up. And I think it was like eight months before he could sort of communicate with anyone publicly about it. It was he, he was shattered. But there's a nice resolution at the end, which we won't say. Just in case people want to pick it up on iView, you can see Australian Story on iView, and that's the two-part doco on Luke Longley. It's brilliant. But, Carol, I can remember as a young sports reporter back in 1981, one of the very first... It was a picture story, and I was sent out to a a basketball stadium somewhere around the Essendon area. And uh, I think the National Basketball League was only a couple of years old at that stage. But 
the enthusiasm of the team and the coaches talking to me about how this sport was going to take off in Australia, me as a young, what was I then, 20 or 21-year-old, was a bit sceptical, I have to say. I wasn't sure. But, um, wow, how far it's come. And so that is my massive crush, massive topic, a lot of people involved, but well done, everybody, for growing that sport in Australia. Long way to go, but they're certainly getting there. Now, Corrie, you're on a roll, so let's kick off BSF with a book. So, Cara, we've been talking a lot about Still Life by uh, Sarah Winman, a book that you and I have absolutely loved. A lot of my customers, have former customers, have jumped on board with it. We had a lovely uh, event, webinar event last week with Sarah Winman. It was a terrific success. And I thought that if people were really engaged and intrigued by one part of this story, which is Sarah's nod to the life of Henry James, it reminded me of a beautiful book I read a few years ago, which I found in the bookshelf again uh, not so long ago. It's called The Master by Colm Toybin. And Colm Toybin is one of my favourite writers. He's an Irish writer. Uh, Many people would know him for the novel Brooklyn, which then became a movie. They might also know him for The Testament of Mary, um, Blackwater Lightship, uh, quite a few books. Wonderful, beautiful, beautiful writer. And in this book, Colm Toybin has dared, Caro, dared to write a fictional account of uh, a, a section of Henry James's life. So he's put himself into the shoes of a great literary master. And boy, oh boy, has he pulled it off successfully. He looks at this particular four-year period of Henry James's life. When Henry was in his 50s, he, he was living in England. He'd written a play for the London stage. It had bombed dramatically. And Henry James who was a particularly tortured soul anyway, very kind of internal thinking, um, had never really understood his sexuality, uh, had, had never embraced his homosexuality because that was never allowed. And he was so shattered by this terrible occurrence of this, of this uh, play being panned and taken off after only a couple of nights. He, he takes himself off to a lonely house in East Sussex where for the next couple of years he writes furiously some of the best work of his, best fiction of his of his life. Some of the great novels come out of this period. And so Colin Toybin takes us into this particular period, but there's a lot of back and forth. Caro, Henry James, um, his family was uh, quite strict. Um, they were very conservative and, of course, into this conservative family emerges this highly artistic, rather, uh, in a way, sensual, sensuous thinking person in Henry James. He was often very lonely as a child. And there is a terrific section where the American Civil War comes into this through family who fought in it. And, um, and then, of course, there's contemporary Henry, as we see, sitting in, his, in the small town of Rye in East Sussex, reflecting on his life and his loneliness, his internal tussle with his own sexuality. And there, of course, is the trial and the scandal of Oscar Wilde looming forth. So it's a great novel, highly recommended if people who read uh, Sarah Winman's book, Still Life, want to take the Henry James journey a little further. That sounds like a great tip, Corrie. And before we move off books, um, Thea Guest, of course, who I just mentioned earlier in the show, she's loving our book recommendations and particularly thank you for The Yield by Tara June Welch. But um, she... Um, Tara June Winch. Winch, sorry. It's spelt wrongly in her email and I knew Oh, that. sorry. I knew sorry, that. Thea. <laughs> I knew that, Thea. I knew that, Corrie. But she thanked Anna, Anna from the op shop, who recommended, remember, uh, To Calais in Ordinary Time by James Meek? And she yes. also recommends by James Meek, The People's Act of Love. Now, I've been hearing a lot about this author, so I just thought James Meek was another one we might have a look at in the coming weeks. That's a weeks. very good idea. Very good idea. Now, we're, we, you know, we can't travel. We can't go anywhere. We're dreaming of returning to Europe one day. And boy, is Joanna Lumley giving us, leading us on a merry dance every Sunday night on Channel 2, Corrie. That is our screen. 
Did you watch her visit to Scotland and the Outer Hebrides on Sunday yes, night? I did. Oh. I did. So I presume, Caro, she's doing this story, she's doing Britain because last year she couldn't travel anywhere. I'm assuming that's the case. Well, I mean, uh, but it, either way, I mean, what a brilliant idea. It's such a brilliant idea. And it's interesting because it's interesting for me because Joanna Lumley, having been born, she was born in India and she came to live in England, um, I, I, I think around the time of partition. So she was a young girl. But she's almost seen Britain through uh, a, a visitor's eyes. Yet there is the huge familiarity of places that she recalls as a child. Didn't you love her having the drink with the old Coronation Street? Oh, yep. Oh. Actor who all these years later, decades later, is still on Coronation Street. I know. But the beauty, the beauty and the rugged. Uh, I remember my mother years ago went on a um, a boat trip around the Hebrides, uh, outer Hebrides. And I know Anna from the op shop, Sister Julie, had her wedding, uh, had her honeymoon there. That, that part of the world just fascinates me. I think we have to put that back on the agenda, not worry about the midges and go there. But the good local tip, Corrie, the last episode, she ends up in Cornwall. So I'm I pretty had a feeling, excited about I that. I had a feeling she might end up in Cornwall. She goes I'm very via, excited um, about that. I think she does a bit of Somerset, a bit of Devon. I think there's a bit of Dartmoor. Um, I think even Truro. So, oh, look, I'm just absolutely loving this series and it's so beautifully filmed. What about George Orwell's house? Yes, that oh. isn't that just stunning where he wrote 1984. And, Caro, I didn't know, nearly died in a drowning accident yes. with his three-year-old son, only to, the boat capsized only to be rescued by a passing fisherman, which made me think, trying to keep a three-year-old out of the water for a long period of time, it must have been a very traumatic experience. How interesting. And the but, house uh, look, is still owned by the family, and it's so remote. And Oh, look, it just... It's, Absolutely beautiful. The series. landscape was gorgeous, and I think you're right. I think we have to put Scotland firmly back on our walking agenda. Joanna Lumley's Britain, and she does Wales, and oh look, it's just wonderful. That's it on. Is. So you watch that at seven thirty after the news, and then you click over to uh, the newsreader. Tickety boo, night. Oh, sorted. Per- perfect night with a bit of Prince wine store wine. And, and I've got uncle. the recipe to eat. Okay, while you're so what's it. your recipe? Tell me. Well, I've gone. I've tried to look up spring recipes because we're pretending that spring is in the air, and it almost is. And Corrie, this is a recipe um, that I read about. It's a one from a good friend of ours who is one of the best cooks I know, Deb Middleton, and she put this recipe in um, our kids' school cookbook years and years ago. And I've cooked it several times. It is absolutely beautiful. It's a veal and porcini ragu. Now, you would love it because it's got lots of mushrooms in it and Mm. you're the mushroom queen. Um, Deb's recipe serves six, um, which means if I'm just cooking for me and Brenda and I have it because we eat enough for three people, two of us. Um, She says the cooking time's an hour and preparation 30 minutes, and I reckon that's just about right. Corrie, this is absolutely beautiful, this ragu. It's, um, she says, Deb, that she's just refined this over many, many years and um, she now thinks she's perfected it. It basically involves a kilo of diced veal, preferably rump, stalks of parsley, sage and rosemary, two star anise, that's the rogue ingredient, grated nutmeg, olive oil, onion, garlic, etc. And the mushrooms she uses are Swiss browns and dried porcini soaked in warm water for half an hour. Um, porcini powder, which you can buy, she buys from the Paran market, the essential ingredient, but you can find it elsewhere. And there's just the tomato paste, white wine, red wine, salt and pepper. Corrie, this is absolutely beautiful. Once you've got it all together, you throw it in the oven and cook it for an hour. And Deb recommends um, cooking it and maybe serving it the next day on, as I said, wet polenta. I've actually done it on pasta. I think it is. you can have it just on a bed of rocket or salad. It is absolutely beautiful. Sounds great. There's something about mushrooms the next day. You know, Caro, last week I, we were talking about uh, toppings to put on your steak and I had the mushroom recipe. Well, in fact, we'd made a huge batch of this mushroom topping. And so it sat in the fridge and I had two lots of pasta last week using the last of the mushrooms. I swear to God, every day it got better and better. I don't know whether the dietitians or or health microbiologists would be saying to me, "Mm, no, (laughs) there's a bit too much fungi happening there in that bowl. But gosh, it really tasted great. 
Well, most of the guy, the young guys I work with at Channel 9 will be horrified by the veal and porcini ragu because there are a lot of vegetarians beneath the age of 40, I'm finding. But this one, and they, they would love your mushroom recipe, but this, if you're a meat eater, is absolutely delicious. Now, that was BSF for Red Energy. As we've told you many times, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131806? Gosh, it'd be a bit cold up there in the snowy today, Caro, I reckon. It would be. And I'll tell you where else it's cold. And this leads me to my grumpy, the, the state of Tasmania, after that very underwhelming review put forward by, well, finally revealed, unveiled by the AFL last Friday, but basically unveiled under the cover of COVID. What a topic avoiding, buck passing, hiding behind exercise that has been for the AFL. I am so disappointed in both Colin Carter and the AFL Commission and primarily Gillan McLaughlin, who I've always felt had Tasmania in his heart and the potential for a 19th team and yet has just to coin a phrase from both Colin Carter, the former Geelong chairman and AFL commissioner who did the review and the Tasmanian chairman Tasmanian Premier, I should say, Peter Gutwin, he's just kicked the can down the road again. They have delayed this issue for years. From the time Gillan McLaughlin took over in 2014, they have just put Tasmania in the two-hard basket. They promised this, this Colin Carter review in June. They released it in August. Colin Carter didn't even come up with a recommendation. He came up with three choices. No, I was surprised by that. You said that to me the other day. I was absolutely shocked. What was it all for if you don't come up with recommendations? Nor a timeline, which was the one thing Tasmania wanted. Now, it's all very well to say the AFL Commission is obsessed with debt reduction, and they are. They are obsessed with getting out of this pandemic, as they should be. But it is just not fair to not give a date. Now, say... Make it COVID dependent. Say, you know, Tasma- we, we have to grant Tasmania a licence maybe three years out of the pandemic or we will work towards a licence in 2028, assuming COVID is finally beaten in the next 12 months. Something like that, Corrie. But to not even have a date, I think it's just... I thought it was really interesting that your man, Alistair Clarkson, broke ranks with Hawthorne after the game, after that wonderful victory over the Bulldogs on the weekend and actually said they deserved their own team when Hawthorne obviously make a lot of money by playing there. So that was a pretty big thing of Alistair Clarkson to say. Um, And as he farewelled Tasmania for the last time as Hawthorne coach, I, I hope the government of Tasmania stand up to the AFL now and don't sponsor you know, teams like Hawthorne and North Melbourne to fly and fly out and insist on a date and insist on a roadmap because Colin Carter sadly failed to deliver it. Wow. Take that, Col. So I'm grumpy. I'm very grumpy. But for Red Energy, I'm now going to ask you a quick question. Good. Should, and there are six of them, so I'll kick off. Should, oh, look, I love this story. Should the Ballarat electorate of Wendery change its name? Absolutely not. To Eureka. <laughs> Absolutely not. I, I, don't, I don't know where this has begun. And, in fact, I rang the Ballarat family yesterday and I said, are you outraged? And, look, admittedly, Francesca has three little kids and everything. She said, oh, yes, yeah, so, you know, it was a kind of, it was a bit, it was a bit, uh, oh, well, it's happened. I said, it's happening in your backyard. You need to be engaged. I can't believe this suggestion that Wendery which the Ballarat-based electorate of Wendery, Caro, has, is an Aboriginal word, as we know. Funnily enough, it is said to mean go away, which is hilarious. Um, but Well, maybe not hilarious. Maybe it was quite poignant at the time. But this, uh, the Electoral Commission has, has said that perhaps it should be renamed Eureka in recognition of the 1854 stockade. I don't mind and the name. I don't mind the name Eureka. Yes, oh, Miss Jane's screwing up her nose. No you don't. Joke. You don't take Wendery, and also Wendery is such a significant name in Ballarat and a significant area. Not only is it the lake, but it's a suburb, and of course, it's the electorate. I, I was just outraged. I was outraged. It's like a white fella overlay on a, a, a wonderful Indigenous heritage. Nut Caro, not into it. Really cross. And come on, Ballarat people. Come on, Ballarat family. Get those placards happening. March the streets. Caro, 
Ernie Sigley died this week, which is very sad. Were you an Ernie Sigley fan? Well, I was such a fan, Corrie, that when I was hosting the afternoon program on 3AW, um, and Ernie used to... um, I actually suggested that he become my sort of fill-in when I took holidays, and he did an absolutely brilliant job and was probably far better at the job than I was. So when I went on maternity leave, from which I never came back when I became pregnant with Clementine, I actually went in... I remember going in and telling Steve Price, who was running 3AW, look... I'm pregnant and um, I probably won't come back after I have this third child because the job with three small children was just going to be too difficult. Um, So you thought you'd become chief footy writer of the age instead? Well, that was two years later. (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty crazy. But um, I said, Ernie's got to do the job. And he went on and, you know, that was his last real job in the media. And, you know, he was a great Tonight Show host in Adelaide. He used to tell great stories about when he was um, a DJ on that. He he was sort of on one of the original, you know, Boat the Rocked, you know, that great film we saw. (laughs) He worked at Radio Caroline, I think in Germany or somewhere in Europe, Um, Hamburg, maybe many, many years ago but um no he look he did a fantastic job 12 years for his last gig on 3aw he could be grumpy he was old-fashioned in his humor he was a ballarat boy well in fact bunning was where he spent his last days i remember his wife glennis one of the most wonderful gorgeous women who was very much part of the 3aw family and yeah look i was i was a fan um there are not many broadcasters like Ernie anymore who could make it. You know, what was he was really the little Aussie battler. He adored the Western Bulldogs. Sadly, couldn't get... He was starting to become ill with Alzheimer's when the Bulldogs finally won the flag in 2016. But, um, yep, that's Ernie. And Corrie, moving on from Ernie Sigley to Barack Obama. Gee, we're, would you have versatile in this segment? We, we swing around the world. Were you surprised that he didn't invite the Sussexes, sorry, theatre, Thea, <laughs> to, his 60, <laughs> to his 60th birthday party? No, I wasn't, I wasn't Carol. Were they the, snubbed? The, well, I don't know. It's hard, to get a grip on, it's hard to get a grip on the truth here. What we, what we do know about Barack Obama's 60th birthday party, which was a week or two ago, was that the party originally was going to be 500 and it was scaled back to 200 for COVID reasons. And it was held on Martha's Vineyard and it was turned into a bit of a weekend. There was a golf game. There was a Sunday, there was a Sunday brunch. I think it was, uh, it was a pretty intense parting time. And look, good on him. Good on him, really, because he's worked so hard for the past 20 or 30 years of his life. He deserves to celebrate. There was a lot of in the American media about whether 200 was even appropriate, was even an appropriate number, but they're allowed to have 200 over there. Uh, but the guest list, Caro, as I can see, is not overloaded with celebrities, so I don't think the Sussexes should have felt particularly miffed or taken it personally. But history does not relate whether they were perhaps on the first 500 list and then were asked, no, sorry, you can't come. That's embarrassing, isn't it, when you actually have to tell a few people, sorry, you haven't made the second cut. Well, that's happened a bit in the last year or two in Australia. I mean, I've been, has, asked to, I've been asked to a couple of weddings where they've ended up being 20 people and I've sort of completely understood that I probably wouldn't make the top 20 of um, some lovely friends. But um, no, what I would give to be on Martha's Vineyard at the moment, one of those beautiful big shingled houses, walking down the avenues of, you know, plum, what are they called? Beach plums. Carol, I'm hanging out for Port Ferry. Yeah, well, <laughs> no beach plums at Port Ferry, but lots of beautiful natives. I don't care where I go. Just get me out of lockdown Melbourne. Um, so one of the joyful things on the weekend, Carol, was seeing the footage of the Field of Dreams. Kevin Costner, as we know, opened the real Field of Dreams over the weekend. But which was just, I, I had tears in my eyes seeing them play. It was fabulous. What do you reckon the be- his best ever baseball film was? Well, in my view, it wasn't Field of Dreams. It was one of my favourite sporting films ever, Bull Durham, which um, also starred Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins. In fact, I think that's where Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins first got together in the making of that film. That It is a brilliant film. Bull Durham is the Kevin Costner character, an ageing baseballer who comes back to a baseball team. Tim Robbins is the upcoming star. Susan Sarandon is the groupie who, in an opening soliloquy, um, compares baseball to religion in the most incredible way. It is such a beautifully written film. And your brother Steve will probably disagree with me. I remember him saying to me once that Field of Dreams was the best film ever made, bar yeah, none. He said, yeah, that's right. And there was a bit of texting going on over the week. 
weekend to brother Steve. Oh, look, he would have loved that. I mean, and I think it was the highest rating baseball game bar finals ever ever broadcast in America. So it was absolutely beautiful the way they brought... I mean, the whole story of Shoeless Joe Jackson and the Red Sox, uh, the, the Black Sox, was just is so interesting. I mean, all, Eight Men Out is another brilliant film, which I absolutely loved about that topic. But um, anyway, so Bull Durham, better than Field of Dreams in my view. Corrie, what was your favourite podcast this week, apart from Don't Shoot the Messenger, of course? Well, I'm about to tell you about a great new podcast, which I think our uh, gang will love, but I just have to insert here on a serious note um, this morning. So this is Tuesday that you and I are chatting. Tuesday morning, the New York Times, The Daily, which is a podcast I've spoken about before, dropped an episode. It's just titled The Fall of, of, of Afghanistan. And there is they cross to one Kabul resident to be known only as R who has worked in the media and she's one of those wonderful Afghani women who when the Taliban was defeated she's been allowed to be educated and have a great career and she talks about it they just keep checking in with her over a four-day period and the increasing fear and trauma in her voice is extraordinary so that is the New York Times podcast The Daily episode August 16. Highly recommend that. Did you see the vision of um all the um, residents holding onto the plane last yes. night. Oh, yeah, there's been, a, there's been, and there are going to be more. And I think, Carol, as I said to my kids in the WhatsApp this morning, you must watch this because that that those haunting images of Saigon in 1975, when you and I were teenagers, they still stay with me. And if you can watch these historic moments at the time they happen, I think it's terribly important for our understanding and our empathy and all sorts of reasons to do that. But look, on to a happier note about my podcast tip for the week. A friend of mine, Kathy Lane, said to me a couple of weeks ago that she and her friend Mish Eisner were making a podcast. And would I go on and just do a bit of a chat about book clubs and book club politics, which I did. They've recorded five episodes I think so far it's called from the hip from the hip and you can get it through Spotify not through Apple iTunes so go onto Spotify go into the podcast section from the hip these are two women in their 50s talking about life for women in their 50s Um, there's a particularly hilarious and interesting episode Kath, after 18 years of running her own business, has decided that she's going to take a a major job with a big PR company in Melbourne. And she talks about, at her age, in, in late 50s, fronting up for the first day at work at a new gig and how nervous you are it's so relatable Carol like she had a she had her outfit laid out then she thought maybe is that too cool is that too corporate should I change the high heels high heel low heel it's really funny but it's a great it's a great podcast for I think there's there'd be a lovely synergy between our listeners and theirs so that's from the hip on Spotify. And Corey, I've just um, added it to my listen list. It's actually on other podcast platforms as well. If people are thinking, oh, I haven't it? got Spotify. Oh, so Miss Jane, can you tell yeah. everybody what how they could find oh, it? Look, I just use your, your podcast app. I've just used my Pocket Cast, which I love. So I'm pretty sure if you search for it, you'll be able to find it. But I'll put some links in the show notes. Yeah, it's Yay! it's really good. I mean, one episode they did was health and in looking at the whole word well-being. What does that actually mean? As I said, a, a section on podcasts where I was hilarious. Not not really. Um, okay, so on to the next question, Caro. Oh, this one. Oh, oh, I think I know what you're going to say. Can Q&A on the ABC, can it be saved? Of course it can be saved. Move oh, it good. back to Monday night. I mean, seriously, the worst programming decision ever. But Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it was a really poor decision. It never worked on Thursday night. I loved Hamish. I don't know why he's gone. I mean, that just seemed like a... Re- I mean, I don't know whether it was his decision or the ABC's decision or they just had a massive falling out. But this show is made for Monday night. And, you know, I'm saying this given that it's on against my show, Footy Classified, for seven or eight months of the year. But I just can't understand why it was moved to Thursdays. It's a great show. It needs to come back to Monday night. Here, here. And what do you think of three, three presenters now? Oh, look, no. No, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea either. I'm a one-presenter kind of person. Yeah, I, I don't. Agree. There's no such thing as a democracy. Anyone who's been in a rock and roll band will tell you that. Not that I ever have been 
Corrie, it has been wonderful to chat to you again. We will continue to try and brighten up your lives as best we can. Thank you to our podcast supporters for doing that, helping us. Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas and Prince Wine Store. You can connect with us via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And if you want to get our show notes delivered to your inbox each week and you'll get the recipes and the book recommendations, etc., even an old photo this week of me and Ernie Sigley. Hit the sign-up button on Facebook or in our show notes. Thank you, Paige McGinley, my former 3AW producer, for sending me that lovely memory. Or send us an email and we'll subscribe you. Email feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. And Corrie. Don't shoot the messenger, Karen. Hi, it's producer Jane here, and if you've enjoyed the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corrie Perkin, perhaps you'd like to subscribe to another couple of podcasts proudly supported by Red Energy. Yes, Red Energy also bring you Home Style with Shana Blaze and Under the Hammer with Stav from O'Brien Real Estate. It's all part of the Red Energy podcast lifestyle series. You can subscribe now wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thanks to Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. That's Red Energy.